The following message is from Pastor Steve Lee of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found at emmanuelcommunity.org. I was intending actually to continue on with the prayer series, uh, but we made some shifts in the church calendar where normally we do our annual meeting on the end of January, but we pushed it down to the uh, first week in February. And as a result, it kind of affected the preaching calendar. And so rather than um, speaking on prayer, uh, we're shifting back to our Job series. And so I thought that because um, it's been almost two months since I preached on Job, it would be helpful to do a little bit more of an extended review of what we've covered up to now. And so although normally that's my rhythm is to do a review from the previous message and then get into the new material, I want to linger a little bit longer and to get a a bit more of a comprehensive recap of where we are right now in the story of Job. I began by stating that we need a theology of suffering before we experience suffering. Because when the storms of life come, it's, it's often too late. What I mean by that is, Uh, Trying to figure out what you believe about God and his ways in the midst of going through pain can be incredibly difficult to do. Uh, And what we find when we look at the story of Job is that Job, like most of us, actually had an underdeveloped theology of suffering. And it makes sense. After all, why do you need one when you're living a charmed life? I mean, Job had it all. He had a wonderful marriage, lots of children, good health, more money than he could spend in a lifetime. And I said in an earlier message that we we see these two statements, God is good and life is good. And I think for most of us, we don't know how to separate these two statements. We don't, in other words, know what it means to say that God is good apart from experiencing life is good. But the challenge is what happens when life isn't going well for us? Is God still good? Can we make that confession? And so this Satan figure comes along in the story, what can also be challenger uh, or accuser as well. And he accuses God basically of creating a flawed system of worship in which the sincerity of somebody's worship is never certain. After all, how do you know that the devotion of your worshiper's God is real when you promise blessing to the ones who are righteous? Um, This led us to this idea, the principle of retribution, which is affirmed in different parts of the Bible. The righteous are blessed and will prosper, while the wicked are cursed and will suffer. And so the challenger or the Satan challenges God and says, remove this hedge of protection around Job and let him suffer. And when he does, certainly he will curse you to your face, God. And God accepts the challenge. And so begins the suffering of Job. And it is brutal. It is horrific. 
He loses his children all in a single day. He loses his wealth. And then on top of that, he begins to lose his health. And Job's initial response is one of quiet submission. It's exemplary. Job chapter 1, verse 21 says, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Not long after this declaration, Job's friends would arrive to comfort him. By this point, Job is so ravaged by his suffering that he is almost unrecognizable to him, to them. And the sight of him is so shocking that for a whole week, all they can do is sit in the dirt with him in silence and in tears. And as I said uh, throughout this series, at the heart of the story of Job is this tension that is created revolving around three truths. And the first is this principle of retribution that I talked about. The righteous are blessed and the wicked are cursed. But another truth is in, has to do with the character of God himself, that God is a good and just God. And then the third truth is that Job is a righteous man. And the point is that at the center of that triangle is Job's suffering. And so what it is saying is that in the light of Job's suffering, at least one of these statements cannot be true. And for Job's friends, it is unthinkable to question the character of God. And the principle of retribution cannot be on trial either. And so the obvious weak point here is Job's righteousness. And so for the next 24 chapters, they will mercilessly attack Job over and over again on his character. And his friends will insist that although outwardly you seem to us to be a righteous man, what your suffering reveals is that there's got to be some hidden sin in your life that you refuse to confess. Job's first speech is also a shocking one. Rather than cursing God as the accuser said he would, Job does something else. He curses the day that he was born. And he raises this disturbing question to all of us. Can life get so bad that non-existence would be preferable to existence? In other words, is there such a thing as a life not worth living? And that first speech of Job ends with this revealing confession that he makes. In chapter 3, verse 24 to 26, For sighing has become my daily food. My groans pour out like water. What I feared has come upon me. What I dreaded has happened to me. I have no peace no quietness. I have no rest, but only turmoil. In essence, Job is saying, this is the moment I've been dreading all my life. It's as if he was anticipating this day. He was as if he was saying, I knew this day would come one day. If we saw in that first chapter, we we're told that he would offer sacrifices for every one of his children every time they had a party. And it said, just in case they had, without knowing it, inadvertently cursed God during that party. What does that tell us about Job's view of God? Did Job view God as someone who was always ready to pounce on us the moment that we make a mistake? 
And is that why he felt in the season of suffering that it was inevitable? I just knew this day was going to come. I knew life couldn't go well for me forever, but that somehow God would punish me. But the thing is, Job's conscience is clear. Unlike his friends, he knows that there is no dark secret that is hidden about some sin that is unconfessed that can explain the level of suffering that he is going through. And so Job, on his part, begins to question God's goodness and justice. Job chapter 7, verse 19 to 20 says, Will you never turn your gaze away from me, nor let me alone until I swallow my spittle? Have I sinned? What have I done to you, O watcher of men? Why have you set me as, a, as your target so that I am, burden, I, I am a burden to myself? Job is saying, the thought of your eyes constantly on me brings me no comfort whatsoever. In fact, it's a horrifying feeling to me that you're looking at me all the time. This feels to me like an aggressive, hostile act. Job chapter 9, 21 to 22. Although I am blameless, I have no concern for myself. I despise my own life. It is all the same. That is why I say he destroys both the blameless and the wicked. You know, at some point, though he is constantly declaring his own innocence, he's saying, I've reached a point where I'm not sure God even cares about my innocence. Because when I think about God now, I see him as a God that just brings suffering arbitrarily. Both the innocent and the wicked suffer under his hand. So I don't even know why I'm trying to defend my innocence anymore. And then interestingly, Job goes on the attack with the principle of retribution itself. Because it's as if he says, my eyes are like open for the first time and I see how the world actually operates. I don't know why I didn't see it before, but when I actually look at the world, what I realize is the wicked don't actually get punished. Job 21, selected verses, it says, why do the wicked live on, growing old and increasing in power? They see their children established around them, their offspring before their eyes. Their homes are safe and free from fear. The rod of God is not on them. They spend their years in prosperity and go down to the grave in peace. Yet they say to God, leave us alone. We have no desire to know your ways. Who is the Almighty that we should serve him? What would we gain by praying to him? That's how the world is. The wicked live carefree lives. They don't suffer God's judgment. They don't get punished. And then he looks at it out the other way about the righteous and the, the innocent victims. And he says, it's not as if they're getting it better because of God's care for them. He's beginning to lose confidence that God rules this world with justice. Chapter 24, verse 9 to 10. The fatherless child is snatched from the breast. The infant of the poor is seized for a debt. Lacking clothes, they go about naked. They carry the sheaves, but still go hungry. And as you keep reading through the latter chapters, though, Job is this sort of mixed bag of emotions. And even as he says these things about God, there are also these moments where he has to acknowledge that there is evidence of God's care and goodness over his creation, that there are signs of God's love for his creation. But here's the thing that Job begins to feel. Is he saying, for whatever reason, 
that love of God toward others isn't there for me. I don't know why I am excluded from this love. Job chapter 27 verse 2 says, As surely as God lives, who has denied me justice, the Almighty who has made my life bitter. You see, Job may have been able to affirm that God is good in some kind of a vague theological sense. But he can no longer declare with conviction, God is good to me. And there is a world of difference between these two statements, isn't there? It's one thing to believe God is good, but it's an entirely different thing to be able to say God is good to me. In my life, he is good. Well, that takes us through the review of what we've covered up to now. And at the end of it all, Job has these final words to say in chapter 31. Verses 35 to 40, it says, Oh, that I had someone to hear me. I sign now my defense. Let the Almighty answer me. Let my accuser put his indictment in writing. Surely I would wear it on my shoulder. I would put it on like a crown. I would give him an account of my every step. I would present it to him as to a ruler. If my land cries out against me and all its furrows are wet with tears, if I have devoured its yield without payment or broken the spirit of its tenants, then let briars come up instead of wheat and stinkweed instead of barley. The words of Job are ended. It's really Job's mic drop moment where basically he says to God, I have said my peace. I have pled my case. Now I call on you, God, to come and defend yourself. And everything has built up to this climactic moment. The stage has been set as we anticipate now the only thing left in this story is for God to show up. And to respond to Job. But here's the thing. Instead of God showing up, where something totally unexpected happens. And we're introduced to a new character. This is bad story writing. You know? This is not how you tell a good story. But this guy Elihu shows up. Who seems to have been there from the beginning, but he's never spoken up up to now. And this is what we're told about this guy Elihu who's not one of the three friends of Job. Chapter 32, verse 6 to 12. So Elihu, son of Barakel, the Buzite, said, I am young in years and you are old. That is why I was fearful, not daring to tell you what I know. I thought age should speak, advanced years should teach wisdom. But it is, in the spirit, it is the spirit in a person, the breath of the Almighty, that gives them understanding. It is not only the old who are wise, not only the aged who understand what is right. Therefore, I say, listen to me. I too will tell you what I know. I waited while you spoke. I listened to your reasoning while you were searching for words. I gave you my full attention, but not one of you has proved Job wrong. None of you has answered his arguments. <laughs> What an arrogant guy, right? Elihu is an angry young man. And because of his young age, he hesitated to voice his opinion on the matter. But he said, listen, I've been listening to all of your blabbering. And I was respecting you because you're older than me. But here's the truth. You guys are talking a bunch of nonsense. 
things that you don't know. And Job is raising some serious and legitimate arguments here. And you guys have done nothing to answer him in any kind of meaningful way. So he says, now you guys shut up and let me talk and say a few words, even though I am younger than you. There's a lot that could be said about Elihu's speech, which basically goes for six chapters. And it's a really long-winded speech. And the truth is, when you kind of study it, he does make some of the same errors that Job and his friends make in his theology. But what I also want to say is that Elihu actually says some distinct things that are important for us to hear. And for the sake of time, I'm only going to focus on one of them. It's, I think, the key point that he's trying to make to Job and his friends. And he says this, throughout the cycles of argumentation going on, Job's friends have always said, Job, confess, confess, confess this hidden sin and show that you are not as innocent as you think you are. And what Elihu says is he doesn't question Job's innocence when it goes to his past life. But what he says is, Job, you are not innocent. But it's not because of some hidden sin that I think you've done. You are not innocent because of the way that you are talking right now about God. Something is not right about your attitude toward God and how you're treating him and how you think of yourself. And this is what it says in chapter 33, verse 8 to 12. But you have said in my hearing, I heard the very words, I am pure, I have done no wrong, I am clean and free from sin, yet God has found fault with me. He considers me his enemy. He fastens my feet in shackles. He keeps close watch on all my paths. But I tell you in this, you are not right. For God is greater than any mortal. In other words, this is what I think Elihu is saying to Job. In your enthusiasm to defend yourself, you're doing so at the expense of God's own character. In other words, in the certainty of Job's innocence, he is calling into question every other truth, including those about God himself. And Elihu is arguing to Job, God is so much infinitely greater than you. How dare you make these claims about him thinking you know everything about him? Who are you, Job, to think that you have figured God out and that you now stand in judgment of him? Chapter 34, verse 12 to 17. It is unthinkable that God would do wrong, that the Almighty would pervert justice. Who appointed him over the earth? Who put him in charge of the whole world? If it were his intention and he withdrew his spirit and breath, all humanity would perish together and mankind would return to the dust. If you have understanding, hear this, listen to what I say. Can someone who hates justice govern? Will you condemn the just and mighty one? What Elihu is saying is, Job, in your attempt to justify yourself, you have gone too far and now stand in judgment of God and his justice. And God himself will make that very same accusation to Job in chapter 40, verse 8, when God would say to Job, would you discredit my justice? Would you condemn me to justify yourself? 
As we have seen in these later chapters of Job, Job has taken on an increasingly presumptuous attitude toward God, thinking he knows exactly what God is up to. In one of his earlier speeches, chapter 10, verse 13, Job says, but this is what you concealed in your heart, and I know that this was in your mind. He's talking to God now, and he's saying, God, I know what's in your mind. I know what's in your heart. I know why you're doing this to me. And he would list all of these horrible attributes of God, saying you are like a wild animal on the attack, and you are mercilessly, angrily raging against me. And you don't care about my innocence. And he goes on and on. He says all of these things about God that are not true. John Walton says this. No one can out-God God. This is one of Elihu's strongest and most important points. Its message should ring in our souls. One of the most important, one of the most persistent human errors is to the belief that God is not doing a very good job which implies that given the chance, we could do it better. This is precisely the mentality evident in Job's response throughout the book. And this is what Elihu attacks most vigorously. When the world doesn't work the way that we think it should, we are inclined to manufacture solutions in our minds that will address either our situation or the situation that concerns us. Famine in Africa, child prostitution in the Far East, oppressive tyranny in this country or that. We are inclined to make it seem like a simple fix. We are rarely able to imagine the complications or collateral damage, a problem portrayed in modern application by the movie Bruce Almighty. I I thought about that reference to Bruce Almighty, and I thought it was an interesting one. How many of you have actually seen that film? It's 20 years old, so I can't believe it's 20 years old. It's a Jim Carrey movie, right? It's a comedy that portrays him as a television field reporter who loses this coveted anchoring position on the broadcast news to a coworker named Evan who does some underhanded things and steals the job from him. And he has this meltdown where he's on the air doing this report and he just loses it and he gets fired from it. And as he is exiting the news studio, having just lost his job, he sees this homeless man just sitting there on the ground in the parking lot and a bunch of thugs picking on him. And so trying to be a good Samaritan, he intervenes. And for his efforts, he gets beaten up for it. And I actually want to show you a clip from that movie from what happens right after he gets beaten up. And just take a look at it because the parallels to Job are actually striking. You guys remember pagers? (laughs) Well, it turns out that it was God who was paging him if you watch the movie. Played by, you know, everyone knows, right? (laughs) Um, So God offers Bruce um, his powers for one week, thinking, well, you think you know how to do this job better than me? You go run the universe for a week and see how it is. And here's the thing is, not surprisingly, uh, Bruce will first use those powers for his own benefit to get his job back, to get revenge on that gang of thugs, to impress his girlfriend and win her back. But what happens as the movie goes around is that he just keeps hearing these voices in his head, and they're just totally distracting him. 
And he finally gets to talk with God again and says, what are these voices? And he goes, those are the prayers of people. And you got to answer them. you got to help them. They're looking to you for help. And so he tries his best to answer as many of these prayers as he can, but it's overwhelming. It's just too many of them. And so eventually he gets so frustrated that he just replies to every single prayer, yes. <laughs> Everyone gets what they want. And as you can imagine, chaos ensues as everyone gets their prayers answered. And eventually, in his growing arrogance as well as actually, he ends up kissing his coworker and his girlfriend catches it. His girlfriend leaves him. And he makes such a mess of his life. And frankly, he makes such a mess of the world that he comes to the realization that standing in the place of God isn't nearly as easy as he thought it would be. And so he begs God to take back his powers and to let him just be a normal human being again. I won't give any more spoilers, so go watch the movie yourself for this 20-year-old movie if you're really interested in seeing how it ends and see what Morgan Freeman does. Um, I want to ask you, though, would we be any better at playing God? Do we think we could do a better job than him. How would you administer justice in a broken world filled with sin and the free will for people to harm one another? I think the truth is we don't know how to make it all work, but when we think about God's justice, usually all we mean is I want God to work in my favor. What that usually means is I want God to punish the people have hurt me in my life. That would be God's justice. But here's the other side of it, is I want his mercy when I screw up and fail others. In other words, we're not sure how to make the whole system work. But all we know is that we want the system to work in our favor. That's how we define God's justice. It was interesting in... Um, 2004, our family had just been in Kenya uh, for just a few um, few months. And we had a chance to vacation um, just after our youngest, Judah, was only a couple months old. Um, right on the day after Christmas uh, to Mombasa, which is a coastal city in Kenya, uh, right off the Indian Ocean. And when we got there, we got settled into the house where we were staying, which was right by the beach. And we turned on the news on the television set. And the news was blaring with this crazy announcement that an earthquake had happened off the coast of Indonesia on the other side of the Indian Ocean. And that a tsunami had struck. And there was nothing like that in anyone's recent memory. Um, over 230,000 people would lose their life in this tsunami. The waves that were created were so enormous that we, in the east end of Africa, were told not to go swimming the next day because the waves were hitting our shores. And when we went out to the water, we saw 
the rocky waters coming from that tsunami and couldn't go swimming that day. And what's interesting is that in Indonesia, around that time, there was a thriving Christian community off one of those coasts. And what had been happening at that time was that these Muslims were persecuting these Christians. And out of that persecution, they basically were chasing the Christians out of their home and more inland, away from the coast. And when that tsunami hit, all of those Muslim villages were wiped out and their oppressors were killed in an instant. And it would be really easy for those Christians to look at those Muslims who are persecuting them and thinking, that is the justice of God, right? It shows how confusing it could be to try to interpret events in our life and say, what does this mean about what God is trying to do in a situation like this? What is interesting is that Christian community did not celebrate and gawk at the dead Muslims in that coastal area, but they actually gathered supplies and went to them and said, we don't know what the meaning of something as horrible as the tsunami is. All we know is that we are called to show the love of Jesus even to our enemies, and they helped those Muslim oppressors in their moment of need. When we look at the story of Job, it's so confusing trying to make sense of all this, and we are desperate for explanations, and yet instead of giving clear explanations that help us understand God's justice, what we are invited to is a posture of trust. Later, Elihu will say in chapter 34, 29 to 30, but if he remains silent, who can condemn him? If he hides his face, who can see him? Yet he is over individual and nation alike to keep the godless from ruling, from laying snares for the people. What Elihu is saying is this, when you don't see God clearly in your life, it doesn't mean he is not at work. But God is always at work. It takes a heart of faith to trust that even when things don't make sense to me, God is always in control of things. Jesus would affirm the same truth in the Gospels in Luke chapter 12, 24 to 28. It says, consider the ravens. They do not sow or reap. They have no storeroom or barn, yet God feeds them. How much more valuable you are than birds. Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to your life since you cannot do this very little thing? Why do you worry about the rest? Consider how the wildflowers grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If this is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into fire, how much more will he clothe you, you of little faith? That's Jesus' invitation to us. Is even as God cares for his creation, know that he cares for you, even when those signs aren't always visible. And I'll just close and end with this. Elihu will have one more word of wisdom to give to Job in chapter 35, verses 9 through 11. And he says this, People cry out under a load of oppression. They plead for relief from the arm of the powerful. 
But no one says, where is God, my maker, who gives song in the night, who teaches us more than he teaches the beasts of the earth and makes us wiser than the birds in the sky? What Elihu is saying is this. The first prayer is the prayer that everyone prays which is the prayer of deliverance. Get me out of this mess. Fix my circumstances. Work on my behalf. But he says this, the prayer that we really ought to be praying is that second prayer. You, God, who give wisdom and teach us how to understand things, give us wisdom about how we are living our lives. And that's going to become one of the enduring messages of this book of Job, is that so much of our instinct is to say, God, if you are real, then fix this. Help me. Do this for me. And yet much of the journey of life is going to be in the midst of our struggles and suffering. The prayer needs to be, you, God, who teaches the people of the earth. Teach me what I need to understand about what I'm going through in this season of my life. Let's pray. Can I invite you into a time of personal reflection and prayer as you think about these two prayers in your life? And I, I suspect that for a lot of us, we frankly get impatient with God and feel like, how hard is it to, to run this universe? Like, why is our world so messed up? And why is God so incompetent? And I, I think just we have no idea of how complex it is to live in a broken world filled with beings that possess free will that can do otherwise than the will of God and how their intentions can affect my life. And in the midst of all of this, frankly, the truth is for a lot of us, we don't really even care about that. We're just saying, God, just fix it and do something that I want. Be like Bruce Almighty just saying yes to every prayer saying, what a disaster that would be if every prayer was answered yes. I think the invitation of God to us is um, one of trust, one of humility, to say that in the pain that you're going through, you may not understand everything that you're going through, and yet it is nevertheless to say, God, you are so much greater than I am. Your knowledge is so much more infinite than I. Who am I? to stand in a seat of judgment against you. Give me that posture of humility. And it's as Elihu is saying toward the end here, saying the whole world is crying out for God's power to change circumstances, asking for his deliverance. But where is the wise person that says, you, God, teacher of, teacher of people, teach me what to learn from this experience that I'm going through? And so uh, before we come to the Lord's table, can I just invite you to just a brief moment of prayer for you to come to God and say, God, uh, give me that humble posture before you. God, the truth is, like Job, sometimes I do feel like I stand in judgment against you. And I feel like I know better than you. I feel like if it was up to me, I could do a better job than you. We need the humility to say, uh, wow, what a ridiculous statement that is. Who am I to think that I know better than God? Even though things do not always make sense to me, give to me a heart of faith and trust that you are going to care for me and help me and do what you are going to do in my life always out of a place of love and care for me. 
Would you just pray that for a minute or two? And then I'm going to invite you to come to the table and we're going to take communion together. Let's pray.